You're listening to Design Tomorrow. You're listening to Design Tomorrow. I'm Chris Butler, and I'm a recovering minimalist. I've always been one, and I always will. But in my late 20s, I went through a phase you might describe as advanced minimalism. That phase of my life was not healthy. I see that now. In fact, calling it aggressively, absurdly ascetic would not be unfair. And just so you get the picture, let me quickly tell you about my apartment at the time. In my bedroom, I had a bed and a lamp on the floor next to it. On the other side of the room, I had a simple IKEA bureau with three drawers. In the other room, I had a desk and a stool, and that is it. In the entire apartment. Now, I had my clothing, I had a few books and a laptop and some kitchen stuff, but basically, everything I owned could be carried out in one trip. It was an extreme way to live, and at the time, I suppose I had my reasons. But I remember one day when a good friend of mine came over and he took a look around and he said, Look, Chris, you've got a body. Give it a place to sit. I may not have been consciously denying my embodiment, but my friend was right. There's a reason that for all of human history, we've made things that help living in a physical world be less hard. Take shoes, for example. Imagine living your life without shoes. There's a basic function they serve, which is to protect your feet, your supports for life. We need shoes, and if we're going to wear them, they might as well be comfortable. And we might as well like the way they look. You see, going from utility to preferences is not exactly a giant leap. It wasn't just my friend's comment that pushed me out of my ascetic phase, but nevertheless, I got more and more comfortable with the idea that comfort isn't a bad thing. And objects that aid in comfortable living are not only acceptable, but are worth celebrating. And so today, I want to celebrate the object. Design Tomorrow is a podcast about design, technology, and being human. Which, admittedly, is a lot to be about. But in all things, we hope to grow in our awareness that what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. You can follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Design Tomorrow. Just leave all the vowels out. So that's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. You can also visit the show's website at designtomorrow.co. And if you want to get in touch directly, you can email me at chris at designtomorrow.co. I'd love to hear from you. And now, let's get back to the show. There is magic in ordinary things. Things that are simple, that are used often, that are loved, that last. For every year of wear and layer of patina that accrue on the surface, an equal store of irresistible charm and fascination 
fills an imagined interior space within them and shrouds them in an aura of enchantment. Steve Jobs famously called Apple products magical, and to be fair, that's not the most hyperbolic thing anyone of stature ever said about them. Now, Jobs meant it in a Clarkian sense, as in a technology of sufficient advancement such as to beguile the average user by just, you know, working. But when I say magic, I intend a much more mysterious meaning. An ordinary object becomes magical when, despite its ordinariness, it stands out from everyday life. When its quality exceeds its qualities, when it becomes a talisman imbued with all the power of the many moments of your life it has experienced with you. Some psychics claim to be able to intuit many things about a person simply by touching one of their possessions. A hairbrush, maybe. Or a locket, a keyring, a blouse, or a pair of glasses. Somehow these items become sponges of information. Perhaps because without ownership, they're just empty vessels waiting to be filled by a lifetime of private moments. But I wonder... Does a psychic ever reach for a laptop or a smartphone? Or is an owner's unique signature a weak signal lost in the blare of society's noise that things like that, these complex and technological objects, contain? Ordinary objects make for powerful symbols, don't they? A hairbrush for beauty, for instance, a locket for love, a keyring for secrets. Within each one, could be a psychic library of stories, each about us and the lives we live. A smartphone has no such magic. It's a portal to every story ever written, and more problematic than the immensity of that is the intent. The stories we tell on the internet are the stories we tell, but our things, our things could tell different stories about us, many of them a more true representation than our own narratives. I have some magical and ordinary things. They're things I use every day, things I never tire of using, things I choose to use over other things I own that do the same thing, perhaps even faster or better. Some of them are predictable. My notebook, for example. It's a 5 by 8 black, hardbound book with 62 pages of smooth, unlined paper. I carry it with me everywhere. I fill it with notes and drawings, lists and quotes, fragments of writing, ideas and journal entries. My laptop or my phone could offer me the same thing in theory, a place to capture my thoughts, but it would also offer me the one thing that would undermine everything the notebook is good for, and that is distraction. The notebook does one thing, one way. And it helps me to do one thing, thinking, slowly. In it, I write most often with a black Pilot G2 pen with a 0.7 millimeter fine point. It's very specific, I know. But I have a few other pens I like. But this one, as wasteful as it is compared with my Pilot fountain pen, is just easier to use. It never clogs. It never leaks. It feels good to use, and otherwise it gets out of the way. If you're a designer you probably have the same love for pens and paper. Maybe someday designers won't be so attached to the handcraft of writing, but for now, we designers of the early 21st century haven't let go, literally, 
of the simple tools that connect us back to people who drew and dreamed a thousand years ago. Clothing, too, can be magical. My favorite belt, my favorite pants, my favorite t-shirt and boots and glasses and watch and wallet and bag are all things I've chosen for similar reasons. They're simple, they're well-made, and they can stand up to everyday use. Like most modern minimalists, I'd rather have a couple of pairs of pants and one pair of boots that I can wear over and over again every single day than a wide variety of things. And nobody really notices because these things are ordinary. They all look the same and they blend in. I don't really think minimalism works without embracing the ordinary. My favorite coffee mug is one of two less than three inch tall off-white ceramic mugs that I bought for less than one dollar. I can't imagine any other coffee cup feeling better in my hands. And I know that no other coffee cup can take me back to the fragile, newly single days on which I wandered into a secondhand store just needing some basic items for the new life that I did not expect to be building. That ascetic life I told you about earlier. And I've used them constantly for the decades since, and I hope to use them for the rest of my life. Along similar lines, I have an odd lamp right here in my studio. I'm looking at it right now. It's made of a three-foot-high, clear plastic cylinder that I found in a dumpster in 2003. I sawed a small notch in the bottom so that I could put a very simple, narrow table lamp, something I also trash-picked, by the way, inside the cylinder and let its cord run out and have the whole thing sit flat on a table. Then I used a strip of duotac and wax paper to wrap the outside of the cylinder about six inches from the top where the light bulb reaches so that the light is diffused. It makes for a warm, golden, glowing, futuristic-looking cylinder that will always remind me of wandering the streets of Providence, Rhode Island with friends in my first year after college. Turning it on reminds me of what it feels like to know nothing about anything. One other thing of similar value is the blanket we call Alex. Yes, my family has named a blanket. Why Alex? Honestly, I can't remember. But that's the blanket's name now. Alex is an old, faded, very light blue down blanket that my mom put in my car when I was driving back to North Carolina from Boston after visiting sometime in 2007. She had a couple of these blankets. They're not quite full size, just shy of it really. They're big enough to cover a person, but not quite big enough to cover a bed. I don't really remember why she gave me this blanket. It was snowing, and the visit had been emotional, and I was leaving, and it would be months at least until we'd see each other again, and it was just one of those impulsive things a mom does when she wants to love her adult son and doesn't quite know how, other than to reach back into that protection playbook. You can't get much safer than you are in the cocoon of an old, well-loved down blanket. One that has covered everyone in the family through nights of sadness, sickness, anticipation, and bliss. A blanket, a given blanket, is the most magical of ordinary objects. This is probably why this blanket has a name. And I know it's weird to name a blanket, but I'm on a roll here confessionally, so now you know that I name things like blankets, and as far as I'm concerned, Alex is as good a name as any. 
In fact, I once knew a guy who had a pet hedgehog named Brian, which, if you ask me, is far weirder than a blanket named Alex. What I'm describing here, this magical ordinariness, is, of course, partly a matter of design. Things that do less tend to last longer and counterintuitively offer more, both because they keep working and because we choose to keep them. Their focus increases their shelf life because an object designed to do many things tends to offer solutions to short-lived problems as value-adds because their construction, the very qualities of their physical being, just does not amount to much. Things like clock radios or musical toasters, that sort of thing, they're cheap and they're silly and they're destined to be thrown away. In fact, every decade seems to have had its own unique blank-with-a-blank trend. The 70s were all about putting a clock on it. And by the 80s, clocks got boring, but radios were not. So we got radios and showers and radios and shoes. The 90s upped the ante and made everything either a stereo or a little computer. I mean, who doesn't want a toaster that plays the spin doctors as it burns your breakfast? I mean, honestly, tell me that the shutter that is about to run through your body after I make you hear two princes in your head because I quote it doesn't taste like buttery carbon. Here we go. If you want to call me baby, just go ahead now. Oh, hell yeah, it does. So that's what the 90s product development was all about. The spin doctors and toast. But seriously, by the aughts, we got the internet of things. And to be fair, the idea of connecting a thing to the internet is not always a gimmick. Sometimes it does make the thing better. But not always. The idea of a watch that connects to the internet sounds great because, wow, we finally get to the future that Dick Tracy promised us 80 years ago. But then, after we've robotically jerked our wrist to attention for the millionth time and not seen what the damn time is, but did see that some bot with a bikini-clad lady avatar just tweeted us a bitly link to what is almost certainly porn or a scam, we realize that, yeah, maybe a good old-fashioned watch might be just the thing we need. You know, because sometimes we just want to know what time it is and don't want to risk tumbling down the ubic hole of the internet just to find out. The internet of everything is changing. Ah, the internet of things. It sounds so useful. When Bruce Sterling mashed up space and time to name the idea of a connected object a spime, I wonder if he realized how repulsive that word sounds and how increasingly appropriate it is as the Internet of Things covers us in the seductive slime of recreational tedium. The more of that black oil we ingest, the more we believe that our insipid profile pruning is productivity. The Internet of Things, it's more like the distributed tyranny of soul-sucking distraction. I mean, do we want to live in a world that is so congested with augmentation that we can't even tell what's real and what's not? God, I hope not. I know I don't. But I digress. I was talking about the beauty, the magic, of a simple, unadorned, unscope-creeped object. Each one I own, whether it's clothing or a tool, is focused on doing one thing very well and grows in its value every time I use it. I hope to always have them all. Sometimes when I'm tightening my belt, I look down at the buckle and I imagine it worn down after 50 years and tightening it even more around what I expect will be the slighter waist of a very old man. And I like that thought. 
Those mugs I love will be even better for my future self than they are for me today because they're small and they're light. My watch is kinetically powered. It could last my entire lifetime. And Alex. Last year, I lovingly hand-mended about 20 little tears in Alex that our cat had made with her claws because even she loves Alex so. Sometimes I imagine asking for Alex when I'm dying. Should I have the privilege of a quiet, future deathbed? And as morbid as that may sound, it's a happy thought. Not because objects make for a good life, but because a good object can be a beacon of a life well lived. Well, friends, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Design Tomorrow. If you did, find the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating and a review. You are my social proof. Help me spread the word that there's yet another podcast out there about design, technology, and being human, but this one is a little different, and maybe it will speak to you. What are your magical, ordinary objects? I'd love to know. You can email me at chris at designtomorrow.co or tweet me at designtomorrow. That's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. And tell me your stories. If I don't hear from you, thanks for listening. And remember, what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. I'll see you then. Welcome to the super secret after credits link section. Good things come to those who wait. Now here's how this is going to work. I'm going to read a bunch of links, and if you want to click them, you can find them in the show notes right below the player. Here we go. Number one. The average person's life plan can only withstand 25 seconds of questioning. Yes, this is an Onion headline, but like all great Onion headlines, it's funny because it's true. Number two. You need to see this clip of an attacking owl from a nature cam. The glowing eyes as they approach in the darkness are incredibly sinister at any resolution. Number three. Hi, um, do you have a minute to talk about our Lord and Savior, Edgar Allan Poe? That is a tweet, and it will make sense when you see the picture that goes with it. Number four. Alain de Baton interviewed Peter Gabriel for the School of Life. They talked about a life lived making music. It's a lovely conversation, and you can watch it on YouTube. Number five. This is what your life looks like when you're a major dramatist writing plays in Italian and you're boldly and publicly living in sin with a woman who should have been the Queen of England. Number six. Google is doing to paintings what they did to books. It's a project called Art Camera. Number seven. There's a video game where all you do is take care of succulents. Number eight. My wife tells me that she's 20 to 30% aphantasic, which is about 20 to 30% more than me, I'd guess. So what does aphantasic mean? It means you aren't able to visualize things in your mind. And finally, number nine. The end is near for public anonymity. You can read all about it in a piece in The Guardian about a facial recognition app being built. You guessed it in Russia. And that's it. Until next time, friends.